Hi, I'm Paul Jay. Welcome to the analysis.news. Please don't forget there's a donate button at the top of the webpage. At 92 years old, Noam Chomsky never stops learning and never stops teaching. His latest book, Chomsky for Activists. And that's another thing that Noam never stops, his activism. Every drop of his life's blood is dedicated to changing the world for the better. Now joining us is Noam Chomsky. Thanks for joining us, Noam. Very glad to be with you again. So b before we dig into this very peculiar uh, moment in American history, let me ask you something a little personal, because your the book kind of starts with some personal uh, reflections. You know, w what keeps you learning and teaching? How do you stay motivated? Uh, you know, the, given the existential threats facing us, the relative strength of the elites, and I, I would say the relative weakness of revolutionary and progressive movements around the world, you seem to just never tire of picking activists up, encouraging, organizing. You never seem to lose your fighting spirit. What, what gives you such hope and conviction? Well, what, what makes the commitment is what you just described. It's uh, we're facing catastrophic threats like nothing that has ever risen in human history. Uh, there are ways to deal with them. There are opportunities. Uh, if we don't deal with them very soon, not many years, we'll be finished. Okay? It's never risen before. We're in a unique moment of human history where we have to answer the question whether the human experiment will survive or whether it will end in an inglorious failure. And we don't have much time. That's enough to keep going. Now, the world, the actual situation doesn't look as grim to me as you described. Uh, it's true that there are no revolutionary movements, but when were there? I mean, there are movements, substantial, uh, energetic engagement over a very broad front of great many people. Actually, I think if you count noses, it's higher than it was in proportion of the population in, than it was in the 60s, except for very brief moments. And it's committed, engaged, doing things, making progress. We have a long history of success. Country's a lot better than it was in the 1960s in many ways, thanks to the activism of the 60s and the aftermath. Uh, there are lots of things we don't have to struggle about anymore because they've been won. It's a bad period in many ways, dangerous period. But there's plenty of, there are both opportunities that are available and there are people engaged, should be a lot more. It's kind of astonishing. We've been through 75 years of the nuclear age and uh, things that I remember on August 6th 1945, and that astonished me then, still astonished me. So on August 6th, I happened to be a junior counselor at summer camp. Uh, the news came over the loudspeaker in the morning, early morning. Atom bomb had destroyed Hiroshima. There was some light applause, great the war's ending, then everyone went off went off to their own activities. And that's pretty much the way it's been since. There's this, on August 6th, anyone who was thinking realized that not only had horrible events taken place, but that human intelligence had reached the point where very soon it would progress or maybe decline to the level where it could actually destroy all human life on Earth and most other species with it, which in fact happened in 1953 when thermonuclear bombs were exploded. How could nobody care? How could nobody care today? 
We didn't know then that we were also entering into a new geological epoch, so-called Anthropocene, in which human activities have reached the point where they're devastating the environment. We've known that for some years. Uh, we also know that there's a couple of decades in which we can hope to do something about it. Now take a look at the uh, at the impeachment proceedings or the ex electoral extravaganzas last fall. Barely a mention. I mean, occasionally somebody says something about it, but as if we're sitting here watching ourselves destroy human life on Earth, and we talk about something else. I mean, there are exceptions, important exceptions, and they've been active and engaged, but nowhere near what it all ought to be like. Now, we're looking at things that are important, but nowhere near on the scale of these things. So it's plain where the commitment comes from, and even the optimism. There are possibilities. Every one of the crucial issues we face, there are feasible answers that can be given, that are given, that we can pursue, that can not only overcome the existential threats, but lead to a much better world. Well, that's a reason for optimism. These events of January 6th, uh, which as far as I can make out, included at least an attempt by Trump to uh, have, organize a military intervention, uh, which seems to have been rebuffed by the military leadership, but the, the, a real dysfunctionality in the, uh, in the state. Uh, and it comes about not just because of the person of Trump, I think, but there's a real social base for, there, as there was for McCarthyism, as there was for Reaganism, uh, Trumpism, which is, I think, somewhat a continuum of, 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 the, of this kind of far-right, rural-supported, primarily, uh, right-wing of the elites and so on, um, that social base ain't going away. And that social base is a climate change denier, never mind a nuclear war denier. And the possibilities of, of, a, of another Trumpian president, if not Trump himself, uh, are very real. Um, what, you know, this is a, your book is for activists. Uh, and one of the themes in the book is how to talk to people who are supporting that kind of politics, uh, which I, I don't think the left has been very good at. Uh, can you speak to that? They have to be reached, and I don't think it's impossible. Uh, there are many different strata. I mean, extreme Christian nationalists who are listening to the word of God going to be hard to reach them. Not impossible. We should recall, for example, that during the 1980s, uh, the most, in many respects, the most remarkable social movement in the history of imperialism developed, first time in imperial history where people from the attacking country, this is Central America, not only protested, but went to live with the victims. That never happened before. Didn't happen in Vietnam. Didn't happen to the French in Algeria. Nobody ever drafted it. But thousands of Americans went there to help. And many of them were from churches, including evangelical churches. And they were some of the most dedicated. These are strata of the population that can be reached. Uh, there are others, ultra-nationalists, white supremacists, proud boys. That's going to be hard. But a large number of them are people who have some basis for their complaints. You mentioned rural America. It's where most of them come from. Now take a trip through rural America. What do you see? You see towns where the stores are shuttered up, or the bank is closed, or the young people have left. Uh, there are reasons for that. Uh, there are Lives and communities were destroyed by the neoliberal assault of the past 40 years, including the neoliberal version of globalization that Clinton implemented. It's not just Reagan, it's a long series. They were betrayed by Obama. Many of them voted for Obama. They were quickly betrayed. 
they believed the pretty rhetoric. Uh, within two years, he had lost them. I, I, I was living in Massachusetts then, the most liberal state in the country, I suppose. And there was a, an, a, an election, you may recall, in 2010, when Ted replaced Ted Kennedy, the liberal lion. 2010, two years after Obama, a year after Obama was in, by then, even union voters weren't voting Democrat. They'd been betrayed quickly, and they turned. Well, those people can be brought back. Uh, people talk about the working class base for Trump. It's not very accurate. If you take a look at the careful studies, uh, like Tony DiMaggio's work, done very careful work on this, uh, the real conclusion is not that the Trump won the working class, but that the Democrats lost it. Uh, they just, in fact, they basically gave up on the working class back in the 70s, the last gasp of the Democratic commitment to the working class was uh, the Humphrey Hawkins bill in 1978, the full employment bill. Now, Carter didn't veto it, but he watered it down so it had no teeth. And after that, there's barely even pale rhetoric. Um, we saw it in the 2020 election, for example. So there's been a lot of uh, talk about what happened on the southern border of Texas, which is pretty astonishing. The Mexican-American area hadn't voted for a Republican since Harding a century, but a lot of it went to Trump. And there were some reasons. One reason is that the Democrats didn't even bother organizing there. Said, okay, you're a bunch of Mexican-Americans, you vote for us, period. We don't talk to you. That didn't help. Uh, the, uh, there were other things. The message that they heard was that Joe Biden wants to take away our jobs, wants to destroy our economy, which is oil-based, uh, just because of some pointy-headed liberal somewhere who claimed there's a climate crisis. And uh, he wants to devastate our lives. Why should we vote for him? Well, it's not unreasonable. What could have been done is to be working down there, getting people to understand, as they certainly can, that you don't have any choice about fossil fuels. You're going to get rid of them in the next 20 or 30 years, or you're going to be toast, finished. You, your children, your communities, you're gone. They're, people can understand that. And they can also understand that they can get better lives. It's not that their jobs are being taken away from them. There are alternatives that are better. Right now, they can be working on capping wells and moving to uh, renewable energy right where they are. And they can turn into a Better, not only a better environment, but better lives, better communities, and so on. All that's there, but if nobody brings it to people and tries to organize them, them about it, they're going to hear what they hear on Fox News. Well, okay, plenty of opportunities, but not if you don't take them. Actually, it's kind of interesting because in uh, Arizona, where I'm living now, in Maricopa County, includes me, they. Uh, uh, there had been extensive Latino organizing, people actually out there talking to people, working with them, doing things, didn't go the path of South Texas. Okay, that's the difference. The ability to see this kind of need to organize in South Texas uh, and to have a national strategy of the kind of organizing you're talking about I don't think progressives should depend on the Democratic Party for doing it. First of all, uh, the leadership, pr predominant leadership of the Democratic Party, there's nothing progressive about them. Um, but there really does need to be the kind of organizing you're talking about. Why do you think there's, unless there's something happening that I'm not seeing, there isn't more of a, a national organization forming that can play this kind of role, you know, support Democratic Party candidates when, when it's the right thing to do, 
but organized outside the Democratic Party, but with more of a national strategy, like a, a national broad front of some sort. It's perfectly reasonable to try to organize alternatives. In fact, there are models that we can, recent ones we can think about, like uh, take Tony Mizaki, uh, the head of the Oil, Chemical, Atomic Workers Union, and one of the earliest environmentalists. Uh, his union, back in the early 70s, was in the forefront of working, of pressing for environmental protection, uh, safety, health and safety acts, and so on. Uh, these are the guys who are right on the front line. They're suffering from pollution and so on. There are communities that are suffering for it. They were, and it's the oil, chemical, atomic workers were organized by serious organizers led by Tony Mazaki. Uh, they can be, in fact, he tried in the 1990s to set up a labor party with enough support, could have gotten somewhere and do it now. But the, cho the cho choices you mentioned aren't exhaustive. It's not either support uh, Democrats or set of alternative party. First of all, you can do both, but you can also pressure the Democratic Party. And that yeah, I wasn't even talking about setting up an alternative yeah, party. Not a bad idea. I'm talking about a broad front that I would say in these conditions winds up supporting progressive candidates within the Democratic Party. Maybe at state and city levels you might think about running some third party level, but supporting at, at them national and also pressing the others. So take Biden. He's not a progressive. We don't talk about that. We know his record. Nevertheless, he came out with the most progressive program in living memory uh, on crucial issues, not because he had a religious conversion, but because people were pounding at the doors. There was a lot of pressure. Now, people in the Sanders movement were actually becoming part of the uh, uh, program, Biden's program committee, the Sunrise movement very successfully succeeded in moving the idea of a Green New Deal from something that was ridiculed onto the legislative agenda by action, by sitting in, in Pelosi's office, other things. And uh, that had an effect. Uh, the Biden climate program, for example, is far from perfect, but it's much better than any that's been around for some time. And there's pretty good indications that the Democratic Party leadership didn't like it. Uh, so there were some strange things that happened last August. I, you can guess what they were caused by, but I noticed them. I was constantly giving talks all the time, so I kept checking the Democratic Party program on the website. And right through August, they had, if you checked, Democratic Party program on the climate, you got Biden's program, which is not bad, better than anything before. But by the end of August, it had disappeared. When you clicked on that same thing, you got how to donate to the Democratic Party. Well, we can each make our guesses. But I think there's clearly a conflict between the donor-oriented, Wall Street-oriented, Clintonite, neoliberal, Democratic National Committee, and the popular base of the party, which is pressing in quite different directions. The big split in the Republican Party, too, a different one. But this is part of the erosion of centrist parties that has been taking place all over the world, wherever the neoliberal assault had an impact. Everywhere it went, for good reasons, the centrist parties are collapsing. In Europe, they've basically disappeared. In the United States, with their two-party system, they keep their names, but they're splintering. Uh, pretty much the same thing has happened. Now, if you look at the effect of the neoliberal programs, you can see why. We talked before about the rural towns, but just take the general population. We've Probably, I think you've even talked about this on your show, but uh, 
you saw a member of the Rand Corporation report that just came out, was estimating what they call transfer of wealth, which means robbery of uh, the lower 90% of the population. Uh, how much was robbed from them in the neoliberal years, 40 years, uh, to go into the pockets of the very rich? Uh, their estimate is almost $50 trillion, which is a serious underestimate. When Reagan came in, among the various changes that were instituted, was opening the spigots on various forms of robbery. So you want to set up a tax haven? Before Reagan, it was illegal. Treasury Department enforced it. The Reaganites, the neoliberal libertarians, said, no, you can't have any constraints. Do whatever you want. Uh, nobody knows exactly how much that is, but general estimates are maybe 30, 40 trillion dollars of plain robbery of the public. Uh, many other devices, shell companies, all sorts of other devices. Uh, well, uh, a profession developed, significant profession of uh, busting unions. Of course, it had always been done before, but it became, it moved from a practice to a skilled, uh, profitable enterprise. Uh, during, the, say, Clinton, his, his particular version of globalization, NAFTA, World Trade Organization, was bitterly opposed by the labor movement, who proposed alternatives that would be much higher growth, much better wages, worldwide, better for everyone. They wouldn't listen, literally wouldn't listen, couldn't get reported. Uh, his, their, the labor organization proposals, the Labor Action Committee, were in fact echoed by the Congress's own research bureau, Office of Technology Assessment came out with very similar proposals. Silence. Congress finally took care of that by just eliminating them. Uh, they don't want to have facts at their hands. It's more important things like serving the rich. So, but here we're, all, and the effect of these is not only to set American workers in competition with the poorest, the most oppressed workers all over the world with obvious consequences, but it's also a device for employers to break unions. And that was done. There's a very good study under NAFTA rules, actually, by Kate Bronfenbrenner, Cornell University labor historian, which describes the way employers could use NAFTA as a way of breaking up organizing efforts. Like you put up a sign saying, Transfer Operation Mexico, meaning you keep trying to organize, we'll get out of here and we'll be gone. They didn't intend to do it, but the threat is serious. And a very substantial number of organizing efforts were simply broken that way. Now that happens to be illegal, but it doesn't matter if there's a criminal state. It was obvious in Reagan, continued in later years. I mean, under Trump, it got absurd. He didn't even fill positions on the NLRB. But uh, that he's basically just uh, raising to caricature things that were already going on. Well, a lot of the population has suffered for this, from this. In Europe, also, uh, the austerity programs imposed by mostly the German banks were very destructive. And furthermore, the Functioning democracy was degraded seriously. A major in the structure of the European Union, major decisions are shifted from the national states where people have some kind of representation to unelected bureaucrats in Brussels who just act on their own. The Troika, IMF, European Central Bank, unelected European Commission. So there's a lot of anger, a lot of resentment, a lot of fertile terrain for demagogues of the Bolsonaro, Trump, Orban variety. Fertile ground for them. Uh, they can claim what Trump did, in fact, very, I have to say, very brilliantly. It's not easy to stand up before a crowd uh, with a sign saying, I love you, while with your other hand you're stabbing them in the back. 
as his legislative program did. That's a pretty tricky operation. He carried it out very successfully and exactly as he said, he's got most of the voters in his pocket. It puts people like Mitch McConnell in a real bind. Uh, it's pretty interesting what happened on January 6th. The big guys, the guys who own the place and fund the party, decided this was too much. They were willing to tolerate Trump's antics, so they didn't like them, as long as he was lining their pockets. But January 6th, too much. They pretty unanimously stood up and issued the marching orders, said, finish, get out. McConnell and a lot of other senators started running for the exits. They heard the voice. They couldn't go too far to the exits because they got Trump's voting base out there. Now they're stuck. You watch McConnell's performances, it's interesting. One minute denouncing January 6th, the other minute saying other things are fine. This is, will go on like this. They're stuck in the middle. And I think uh, to a lesser extent, that's also true of the DNC, the Democratic National Committee. They've got the young progressive voters active, pressing in one direction. They have their Wall Street donor base pressing in the other direction. Well, these are difficult moments. I mean, a lot of people, you too, have recalled Gramsci's famous statement about uh, the old world's collapsing, the new world isn't taking shape, there are morbid symptoms everywhere. I think we have to add that, that there are also favorable symptoms, many morbid ones, many favorable ones. And if you think about it, there's we're entering into a, a, a major class war on the international level. Uh, the pandemic is going to end sooner or later. Hundreds of thousands of needless deaths, but it'll end. And then comes the post-pandemic world. What's it going to be? Well, the people who created the situation from which all this arose, they're relentless. The business communities and its agents in the political system are working very hard to ensure that the post-pandemic world is an extension of the neoliberal bonanza for them and disaster for everyone else. Uh, they don't give up. They're class conscious, relentless, know what they're doing. Question is whether competing forces, popular forces, will be able to uh, overcome them. Well, they are. And, it's, and you put a great deal of emphasis in the book on the work of uh, revitalizing the labor movement. Uh, and I, I totally think you're right. I, I, in fact, I, I find it hard to imagine a popular movement in the country of any scale and clout without a revitalization of the union movement. You can even see from the Sanders campaign, just the nurses, communication workers, like two or three unions that were actively supporting the Sanders campaign made an enormous difference. I'm not sure there would have been a Sanders campaign as successful as it was with only two or three unions really actively supporting. Um, and I don't think this gets enough attention on the left well, and progressive circles, right. just how important it is to start uh, well, working both organized workers and uh, like right now, this fight that's taking place to organize Amazon in Alabama, a critical fight. And, and to, if that could be replicated across the country, organizing Amazon and make that a a cause celeb for the progressive movement, uh, I think it could really breathe some life into into the organizing of a popular movement in on, on all the big questions. You're absolutely right. Let's go back to the, I mean, we're in a situation which is kind of like the early 30s, you know, not identical, but there's similarities. In the 1920s, the American labor movement had been crushed uh, it was a very vibrant, lively, effective movement. It's destroyed by a lot of it just by violence. The United States has an unusually violent labor history, much worse than comparable countries, partly by Wilson's Red Scare, most 
repressive period in American history, which is worse than McCarthyism. By the 20s, it was pretty much gone. Early 30s, it's my childhood, I remember it, it started revitalizing, building again. The CIO organizing began. That incidentally overcame a lot of racist conflict. Black and white workers were working together to build the CIO. That builds solidarity, commitment. It got to the level of sit-down strikes. Now, from the employer's point of view, a sit-down strike is very frightening. A sit-down strike is one step before saying, we don't need you. We can run this place by ourselves. We don't need you ordering us around and you don't know what you're doing anyway. You know how to run it. Okay? Just short of that. About that point, we started, the Supreme Court shifted. It had been blocking every uh, New Deal uh, effort. The switch started tolerating it. Uh, the business world didn't like it, but they kind of went along. Uh, and uh, that can, uh, that was from almost almost crushed, even worse than now. And that's right. They were in the forefront of all the the labor organizers and activists. They were in the forefront of all the New Deal measures. And uh, I think to go back to Tony Mazaki, he was on target. Uh, effort to revitalize labor, maybe create a labor party. Uh, but certainly press very hard on the Democrats to the extent that they can, and also reach people who are voting Republican against their interests for good reasons. They've been smashed. These people who live in rural towns are facing kind of disaster. Now, once you have economic uh, malaise, you start getting pathological symptoms. So there are, we can't forget it, there are deep, deeply rooted currents in the country of white supremacy, racism, uh, yearning for a traditional life, what they call a traditional lifestyle, where everyone's white, uh, Christian, uh, friendly, they all know each other, uh, the colored folk know their place, they don't intrude, there's none of these strange guys like gaze around, none of that stuff, no minorities. But all of that's, it, it, Trump was in fact a genius at tapping the poisons that are right under the surface in American society. Reagan did too, he was a dedicated racist, he just constantly was trying to elicit and arouse it. And Trump was doing it very well, and, uh, but I think a lot of this would go away. The Amazon actions that you're mentioning, it's worth pointing out that they're international. So there are, there's an international strike, one day strike against Amazon. There are others being planned, also an international one day consumer strike. So there are a lot of actions going on on the international level, which is important. I mean, a lot of the unions have the word international in their name, but it's been just pro forma for a long time, but it's now picking up again, and that's very important. Yeah, I think it's critical. Uh, you know, Marx talked about the Industrial Revolution giving rise to the proletariat and modern proletariat and all this. Well, the digital revolution has actually really given rise to the international working class. Uh, it hasn't taken as much organizational form yet as one hopes. But yeah, this, this Amazon campaign could really be a, a game changer uh, uh, globally. I think so. Uh, which also raises another question about this issue of revitalizing the unions. Uh, is that for many, many unions... There's, they are not activists of any sort leading them. Uh, I know I go, I play a game when I go to grocery stores because uh, many of the grocery stores in the U.S. and Canada are actually are unionized. And I go in and I say, "Do you know the name of your union?" And I often the person working there not only doesn't know the name of their steward, doesn't know the name of their union. I've covered strikes where people on the picket line are getting so little information from the union leadership 
the idea of unions as a place for educating workers about class struggle, about these issues, um, it's so important to take up. And I, I, I don't have an answer for this, but we, those of us who have the privilege and uh, what's the word, time to do this kind of intellectual work, uh, we got to figure out ways to get to young workers uh, better than, than we have been. I, I mean, you're one of the people that actually really does get read very widely. But we, we got to get to young workers because there's got to be a fight in the unions over who's going to lead the unions. I mean, I, I was a railroad worker for five years. I was a steward. I was worked at the post office for three years. So I have some of that experience. Uh, and, 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 you know, most workers just never hear the kind of arguments that we make. Well, it's very striking. It hasn't always been like this. The unions back in the 30s, for example, and in fact, way back to the 19th century, the unions were educational institutions. I mean, I can remember it from my own childhood. My family was first-generation immigrants, uh, not much education, little schooling, very high, the working class, mostly unemployed in the 30s, but they were very highly educated. They read current literature, went to concerts, went to plays. Uh, a lot of this was they were involved, they learned about the sciences. A lot of this was in workers' educational and worker cultural institutions. Uh, that was just part of the union movement. You go back earlier to the 19th century. I mean, if you read the working class, there was a lively labor press then. When you read it, it's mind-boggling. It, these, again, were people, most of them never went to school. But it's highly literate. Uh, knew a lot of things, uh, labor, unemployed, uh, uh, uneducated workers, workers who had no schooling, itinerant mechanics and so on, were developing a theory of labor based on, they didn't know Marx, but they knew Adam Smith and Ricardo, and were working on that basis on a labor, labor value, uh, a labor theory of value which justified their opposition to the employment contract. They were strongly imposed to the concept of dependency on a master. That was the idea that was so deeply rooted, it was a Republican Party slogan under Lincoln. It was all over. It was the slogan of the Knights of Labor and others. And they developed an intellectual framework for it, saying, surplus value, they didn't use the term, surplus value is being stolen from you by the employer. You shouldn't tolerate that. The person isn't producing, he has no role in the enterprise, okay? Factories should, enterprises should be owned by the workers working there. And this was developed in a very sophisticated way and plenty of other things. These were people who, it was all part of being parts of the union activism. Now, there's been a long struggle to beat that out of people's heads. Uh, and a lot of it took place during the post-war period. Uh, the United States, like other countries, came out of the war and the Depression with a very strong wave of uh, in commitment to a kind of radical democracy. We have to change the world. It was a horrible world. <laughs> the Depression was awful. The war was awful. We're going to create a new world. That required a major battle to suppress it. Part of it was in the unions. The Taft-Hartley Act of 1947 didn't wait long was a major attack on union organizing. It barred many of the activities that unions used to organize. It became illegal. The right wing was able to take over the government, even under democratic leadership, and support it. Truman actually vetoed it, but he was overridden by Congress, and uh, went on from there. Major campaigns by uh, employers to try to, as they put it, uh, indoctrinate working people with the capitalist ideals so rigorously they'll, they'll just come out of their mouths without thought.
they were worried about what they called if it was necessary. You read the business literature, it's very revealing. It's like uh, little red books, Marxist tracts, and they're dedicated Marxists, just with values reversed. So we, we have to uh, have to be concerned with the uh, pressure of the uh, organizing masses. We have to repress them and indoctrinate them. And they had many devices for doing it. We don't have time to go into it, but it's quite a story in the 50s. And the union leadership went along. They went along with the McCarthyist demand that they eliminate many of the most activist members of the union on charges that they were communists, so we had to get rid of them. So they lost a lot of the activists. Uh, these were people, whatever, you know, they, they were the main activist forces often. And the union leadership settled for a kind of class collaboration. It's very significant the way it worked. So take, say, the UAW, one of the most more progressive unions, Walter Ruther. Uh, it, uh, it, it, it has uh, branches in the United States and in Canada, same union, a couple of miles apart, Detroit, Windsor. They acted very differently with long-term effects. The American branch of the union uh, went, uh, established contracts with management in which they essentially gave up control of the workplace. Say, okay, that's your business. But we'll get some goodies out of it, like we'll get a pretty reasonable health plan. And they did. North of the border, it was different. The same union was struggling for health care for everyone, not just for themselves not just class collaboration. One of the main reasons why Canada has a functioning healthcare program, the system in the US is disaster, okay? Now this, when you make a compact with the bosses, that's a one-sided contract. If they feel they don't have to live up to it anymore, they'll say, get lost. That's what happened in the 70s. By the 1970s, when the neoliberal reaction was beginning, Management just said, sorry guys, it's finished. We're getting out of this game. Uh, probably recall in 1978, Doug Fraser, who was the head of the UAW, was in a labor management conference set up at Carter, uh, Cooperation of Labor and Management. He resigned, made a powerful speech in which he denounced management as fighting, a, as breaking the contract they had with us and fighting a one-sided class war, his words, against labor. He learned a little too late. Management knew it all along. They're always fighting a one-sided class war against labor. And if the other side bows out, they win. Uh, Fraser found out when it was too late. That was the end of a period of class collaboration. Reagan came in bitterly anti-labor. First, for one of his first moves was to attack the labor unions, bring in scabs, open the doors for, uh, for private enterprise to do the same thing. That escalated a very sharp attack on unions. We see the result today. Well, that's the result of class collaboration. That's what you experienced. You don't hear it anymore. There are no educational activities. I mean, I see it pretty often when I go to other countries, even the Anglo even Canada, England, Australia. I give talks in labor halls. Can't do that in the United States. How are you going to give a talk in a labor hall? You know, where are they? I mean, I mean maybe the unions aren't great, but at least they're there. That's uh, the leadership kind of sold them out the way Obama later did. And they work very closely with the neoliberal Democrats. So yes, but that can all be reconstructed. Happened that way before, that it was like in the 1920s. Then it changed. Had a lively, vibrant labor movement which operated at high culture. Incidentally, this is nothing surprising. You go back to the 19th century, for example, there's a very interesting study, scholarly study, by Jonathan, Jonathan Rose, an 800-page study of uh, uh, the 
what the what the working class was reading, just their the literature they were reading. He concludes at the end that they were better educated than aristocrats. They were reading what we now call classical literature, the great literature of the 19th century, and even the economics literature, like Smith and Ricardo, later Marx. Uh, but this was just part of working class culture, even without an education. I mean, in Boston, a, a blacksmith, an Irish blacksmith, who never went to school and was illiterate, if he had a little extra money, would hire a boy to read to him, read classics to him. This was just part of working class culture. And it, I mean, intellect, left intellectuals, like uh, Bernal, others were giving courses in worker education on the sci in the sciences and mathematics. Uh, books like uh, Mathematics for the Million, written by a mathematician, were written for the education of workers. And there were a lot of pretty good, good ones. A lot of that has disappeared. It can be reconstructed. There's also, uh, I think, a real distortion taking place. Uh, they're assessing the working class, almost defining the working class in terms of who they vote for and such, as non-college-educated. Ed a large section of the working class is college-educated. In fact, increasingly, people with college yeah. educations get working-class jobs because they can't get anything else. There's a, there's a real stratum of the working class that's educated, many of whom supported Sanders, uh, and got excited by the Sanders campaign. But I don't know if there's anything going on that's organizing them for the fight that has to take place in the unions uh, for, for, for a more progressive activist union leadership. Well, there are interesting things happening often outside the unions, like take the teacher strikes. They were very yeah, interesting. Yeah, that was very important. They took place in the most... React, often the most reactionary areas, West Virginia, Arizona, where I live, the teacher, and the strikes were interesting outside the unions, often against the unions. Uh, they were not only calling for better pay, which is very much deserved. Schools have been devastated during the neoliberal years, way underfunded. They were calling for better conditions for students, for children, smaller classes, uh, better staffing, uh, things that would improve the educational process. And they had enormous popular support. Happened to live in Tucson. Uh, you drove around the city, there were signs on lawns all over the place supporting, supporting the union, the, not the union, the strike. Ed for red, it was called. But education, red was the color they used. And uh, uh, these, these are, it's springing up all over, also nurses' unions, uh, others, uh, outside the, uh, but some of the main unions are starting to get into it, like GM had a big strike. Uh, United Steelworkers are having some initiatives towards uh, Mondragon, the great huge worker-owned enterprise in northern Spain, which is a huge conglomerate, worker-owned, very successful. Uh, trying to figure out how to duplicate some of their efforts here. I mean, I think there are plenty of possibilities. Amazon's a striking case because, first, first of all, it's taking over the whole economy. You know, it's, it's everything. And uh, uh, a strike at that is very important. And it's inter it has international connections, which should be fostered. Yeah, we're going to start at the analysis. We're going to start doing regular interviews with activists that are organizing at Amazon. Uh, we have one coming out in the next few days uh, of an effort that's taking place in Detroit to demand uh, Amazon actually make some promises. There's a new warehouse that they're opening. The, there's both the fight from communities where warehouses opening offices and, and uh, warehouses. And then obviously there's the fight to organize workers that are in Amazon warehouses and workplaces. Right. And uh, I, I think and it needs to be a big focus of, of progressive attention. Well, that should brigade consumers as well. I mean, it's almost impossible not to use Amazon now, but you can have consumer actions which support worker organizing, like coordinated strikes. 
if workers stop working a day, stop consuming for the day from Amazon. You can leave it out that. There are a lot of things that right. can be done. Well, just to end up, uh, Noam, some, some final words to activists. Get to work. <laughs> <It's>, <laughs> I mean, it's been much harder before, and people haven't given up, and they've achieved things. We have, we actually enjoy their legacy. We can start working from a much higher plane than people, activists in the past, because of the legacy of their achievements, which weren't easy. I mean, take say Black Lives Matter, which organized the biggest social movement in American history not long ago. When you go back to the history, it's violent and brutal. Uh, black organizers were murdered by FBI-organized uh, Gestapo-style murders. Fred Hampton's the main one. It wasn't simple. Uh, but there's a legacy. I mean, I don't have to talk about the civil rights movement. Snake workers were facing conditions that activists now can't even imagine. People riding freedom buses in the South to try to get a, to encourage a black farmer to vote in the face of lynching mobs, you know. Some of them suffering, getting killed themselves. You know. We're not facing that. We're very privileged in comparison. There are serious challenges. You get to work, pursue them, undertake them. You can make a better world. Thanks very much, Noam. Antif, thank you for joining us on the analysis.news. And please don't forget the donate button at the top of the webpage. Mm -hmm.